This is an Okie Doke production. The Iscariot Generation podcast may contain adult themes or adult language. It is not intended for children or those who are easily offended. Baltimore, Maryland, November 7th, 1969. Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick, a nun and teacher, leaves her apartment that she shares with another nun and teacher named Helen Russell Phillips at the Carriage House Apartments in Catonsville. She's on her way to the Edmondson Village Shopping Center to purchase a gift for her sister's engagement at a Hex Jewelry Store. She cashed her paycheck at First National Bank in Catonsville that night and may have made a purchase at Mully's Bakery in Edmondson Village since a box of buns from the bakery was found in the front seat of her car. At 4.40 a.m. the next morning, Russell's friends, Peter McKeon and Gerald J. Coob, both Catholic priests, found Cessnick's car in muddy condition. It was illegally parked across from her apartment complex. Residents at the complex noticed Cessnick in her car that night at approximately 8.30 p.m., and others spotted her car illegally parked across the street about two hours later. Immediately after Cessnick's disappearance, police searched the area for her body without success. Then, on January 3, 1970, her body was found by a hunter and his son in an informal landfill located on the 2100 block of Monumental Road. This was in a remote area of Lansdowne. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. So who killed Sister Kathy? And why? Why would anyone want to kill such a, a person who was beloved in the community, in the school, by all the students, what could she have done to make someone want to murder her? Well, tonight we're going to look at this case and we're going to ask those questions and see what we can find out. It's all coming up on the Iscariot Generation. If you want to turn the channel, go ahead, fool. Turn the channel. If you want to learn something about God, shut your mouth and listen to me for a minute. It's not fake. It's faith. We've seen midgets grow. We've seen arms and legs that stop growing because the growth cells have stopped. da 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 stopped. I don't make this stuff up. Take the fresh breath of the spirit. The word of God is his word. The job of the preacher is to bring fresh birth. Let's call it evil. Where does evil come from? Religion. Hey everybody, it's Phil. Welcome back to another episode of the Iscariot Generation podcast. And today we're going to be taking a look at the murder of Sister Catherine Sesnick. If you've watched the uh, the docu-series on Netflix called The Keepers, that's what we're talking about tonight. This, this was, uh, I think it was a seven-episode docu-series on this. And... Um, so tonight we're going to just take a look at the case and some of the other things that came out later, and we're going to see how we feel about it, because I, I got to be honest with you, um, there's parts of this that really brought up, you know, some flashbacks to the Satanic Panic episodes that we did, and really kind of has my skeptical side raised up a little bit on, on some of these allegations. Um, not, not that there would ever be any doubt in my mind that sexual abuse occurs at Catholic schools or anything having to do with Catholic priests or the Catholic church or that they would be covering these things up. I have no doubt in my mind that that totally could have happened. But there's some other things that, uh, some other allegations that came out that I'm kind of, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about it. 
And uh, maybe it's just because of that episode we did um, earlier, you know, last season. But but we'll talk about that when we get to it. But it's a it's a fascinating case anyway, and uh, very sad. But um, we'll we'll get to that in just a little bit. But for right now, let's take a look at some news. It's time for the news. Here comes the news. It's time for the news. Here comes the news. News is coming to get you. Okay, first up in the news, we see a, a story that says Americans United launches investigation into approval of PragerU curriculum by Florida and Oklahoma Departments of Education. Now, this came out on Americans United for Separation of Church and State on their website in October, let's see, it was October 19th. So, they're launching an investigation into how Florida and Oklahoma education officials permitted public schools to incorporate materials from PragerU into their curriculum. Now, we've talked about PragerU quite a bit. It's uh, mainly um, it's mainly curriculum for like uh, private schools, you know, private Christian schools or church Sunday schools, you know, things like that. Um, that's that's what they specialize in. And a lot of homeschool uh, parents use their curriculum, especially if they're really, really, really religious. So, so what is this stuff doing in a public school? Because they teach creation. They teach um, that evolution is nothing but a theory. And they don't even give a proper defi- definition of uh of evolution. So, I mean, and, and there's a lot of other things. They, they incorporate a lot of Bible verses and Bible stories and things like that. And it's like, what the hell is this doing in public state funded schools? So, in July of 2023, the Florida Board of Education approved the use of PragerU kids' videos in public schools. And in September of that same year, this year, Oklahoma State Superintendent of Public Instruction Ryan Walters announced his department had entered an ongoing partnership with PragerU Kids, and this would permit the use of PragerU materials in public schools. So Americans United Today formally requested all public records from the Florida Department of Public Education and the Oklahoma State Department of Education that detail communications with and about PragerU, as well as records pertaining to the review process the departments used to vet and approve the use of PragerU materials in public schools. Uh, This is uh, a quote from Rachel Laser. She's the president and CEO of Americans United. She says, public schools are the building blocks of our democracy. We owe it to our children to ensure their public schools provide a high-quality education that is free from religious coercion and rooted in facts, not theology or political ideology. She went on to say, a shadow network of Christian nationalists and their political allies are working to destroy public education and church-state separation. They're trying to ban books, prevent public schools from teaching lessons about race, sexual orientation, gender identity, and even menstruation. And and they're encouraging teachers to pray with public school students while displaying the Ten Commandments and in God We Trust in the classrooms. 
She went on to say, Christian nationalists are trying to use the machinery of the state to impose their religious beliefs on all of our children and to get taxpayers to fund this. Not on our watch, she said. We need national recommitment to keep church and state separate. Our public schools and our democracy depend on it. And yes, the hell it does. Um, so that's what's going on with them. They're, they're looking into this right now and trying to figure out how the hell did this ever get approved for state schools, for public schools that are state funded. Next in the news, and this is going to actually double as our dipshit of the week category as well. So, so let me just go ahead and, uh, let me go ahead and, and play that uh, intro here for you. Dipshit of the week. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's just not official unless I actually play the little intro. I worked hard on that. I had to sing that over again like four or five times, you know, to get the harmonies just right and everything. But anyway, so in Louisiana, uh, this student named Kaylee Timonay was having just a little harmless fun with her friends, and a Jesus-loving public school principal is punishing her for that. Now, Kaylee Timonay is a senior at Walker High School in Louisiana. She has just a, a, a great, a stellar resume. All right, she's president of the student government. She has a 4.2 GPA. And she's even going to be graduating in December and will begin college in January. All right, so she's, she's up there. She's, she's done a good job in school. But she was removed as student body president and was told she would no longer be eligible for an important scholarship you know, that she would need so she could start school in January. And it's all because someone took a video of her dancing with her friend at a private post-homecoming party. Now, her own mother was at the party and said there was nothing inappropriate taking place. It was just kids having harmless fun. One girl at the party was twerking and Kaylee was dancing behind her, kind of fanning the air and all. You know you know how they do it. It's a dance move. That's it. There were other kids dancing too. It was, it was, uh, it was just a fun night, a way to blow off steam. They just had their homecoming dance and everything and their homecoming party and, and, and they... We're just going out. It's just like a little extra for, for some of the students who, who wanted to do this. Parents were there. They had a DJ, and the DJ even said, hey, this was just kids having fun. You know, his exact quote was, it was genuinely kids having fun. Well, she gets to school the next day, and apparently someone had posted a video of them dancing, and the principal saw this video. His name's Jason St. Pierre, by the way. And... He stops her, says, I need you to come talk to me in my office, or, or they call over the intercom, something. Anyway, he summons her to his office, and the principal tells her that her actions went against the Bible, and then he began to question her faith. Now, now Kaylee, she, she and her family, they're Catholic, but they're not like proselytizing Catholics. They kind of, the mother even says, you know, I raised my kids to keep that to yourself. You know, that's, that's a personal thing. She also said that the principal told Kaylee she needed to make better choices and have better friends. The next morning, Tim and they had a meeting with the principal again and said that he mentioned that he printed out Bible verses to show Kaylee Timonay. Her, her mother said, you know, I couldn't believe they would do something like that to a kid, a kid with a 4.2 average and beta club. 
She said, being that the separation of church and state and that they don't know what my faith and my beliefs are as a family, and that is not for anybody to do other than my family. Also questioning her and demanding an answer if her friends follow the Lord, and she's answering, I don't know. She should not be questioned or spoken to about faith at all. It's a public school, not a private school, and he has no right to discuss any sort of religion with my child. And uh, the principal had also gave Kaylee a bracelet that said, love Jesus, or said, I love Jesus. Um, Kaylee's mother was, was right, though. There's no reason to bring religion in this situation at all. You know, especially, I mean, this is something that didn't even happen on the school campus. It happened off campus at a private party. Um, and nothing that occurred there violated the school policy. You know, they're allowed to do stuff like that. Well, without the Bible coming into the picture, there, there might be a reasonable debate to, to be had about whether public schools should penalize students for certain off-campus decisions. But even then, the principal's actions would appear to be overreach. You know, but bringing religion into the picture made everything so much worse. So, um, this was just a really messed up situation. Um, even her fellow students really got behind her, and they they put up uh, posters, uh, or you know, profile pictures and things um, on their social media pages, saying "Let the girl dance." I stand with Kaylee Timonay. So. It's just just crazy that this principal would really overstep like this. And could you imagine that happening to your kid? I mean, even if I had been a Christian and this had happened to one of my kids, I would have ripped that principal a new one. You know, trying to judge her as to whether or not she was a good enough Christian in his eyes. You know, I mean, this is just crazy stuff because that's that's what it's about. It's not even about you know, religion or anything like that. It's about he didn't find her dancing appropriate. You know, this is a personal judgment on his that he's trying to say, well, you know, as a Christian, you shouldn't dance in a way that I disapprove of. And she's like, you know, what, what are you talking about? You know, well, over the weekend, following a massive outcry, the principal, Jason St. Pierre, issued a statement apologizing for his actions and he reinstated Kaylee's position with the student government. He said, I believe it is necessary to respond to the public attention that has resulted from my actions regarding Kaylee Timonay's participation in a dance party that was sponsored at blah, 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 whatever. Okay, he says, I've had time to consider my actions, have conversations with the Timonay's, and meet with district staff. Let me stop right there. According to Kaylee's mother, at this time when he published this, he hadn't spoken to the family. He said he's had conversations with the Timonays. Yeah, and Kaylee's mom's like, no, he hasn't. We haven't talked together at all. We're supposed to meet, but as of now, we haven't met. So uh, he goes on to say, first, let me say that I have apologized to the Timonays. No, he hadn't. And I am hopeful that my scheduled meeting with Kaylee's mom will rectify the situation and allow Kaylee to enjoy the remainder of her senior year at Walker High School. He said that he would be reinstating Kaylee's position on the Student Government Association. And also, oh, this is a real douchebag move. He also said that, that, he, would once again reinst that he would reinstate his scholarship endorsement for Kaylee. Uh, here's the thing. She had a, a limited time as to when uh, she could 
apply for this scholarship, and, and his endorsement was a big part of that. Well, he withdrew his endorsement, and by the time he reinstated his endorsement here, time had already passed. So she's not going to be able to apply for that scholarship. At least that's, that's what I'm reading here. So um, he says, as principal of Walker High School, I'm faced daily with many difficult decisions for the interest of our students and employees that are never taken lightly. Please know that I always strive to place our students first in every decision, and it is for that reason that I have taken this corrective action. Um, and then we found out uh, just after publishing this, Principal Jason St. Pierre requested a leave of absence for the rest of the school year. Now, it's not clear if that's related to this or if there was something else going on or what, but figure with the timing is probably about this. Now, he didn't resign. He just asked for a leave of absence. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with all this too, but, but what a douchebag. And dude, that is why you are dipshit of the week this week. Now, uh, as far as our superstar of the week, yeah, let me hit the music for that too. Okay, so back in June, uh, the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board voted unanimously to disapprove an application from St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic Charter School. Um, and then the same board voted three to two in favor of moving forward with the school. So what, 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 is, what is this school? This school would be a taxpayer-funded Catholic school. So despite the board's lawyers saying this could raise legal problems, the state gave the okay for the creation of the first taxpayer-funded religious charter school in the country. And the immediate concern from church-state separation groups was that conservative legal groups would quickly attempt to establish similar taxpayer-funded indoctrination camps and other places using this one as precedent. So unlike public schools, this Catholic school would not require teachers to be certified, they would not have to accept openly LGBTQ teachers, and they would explicitly promote Catholic doctrine during school hours. There's also the possibility that students who became pregnant could be expelled, uh, trans students could be expelled for just existing, and sex education would be omitted from the curriculum. So, I mean, there's a, a, a lot wrong with this. The main thing is our state, you know, our tax dollars paying for Catholic school. I mean, it's, it's just like, what are they thinking? They were right the first time when they said no. So I don't know why all that changed, but <clears throat> you're like, well, what's this got to do with our superstar of the week? Well, here's, here's the guy right here. Oklahoma's Attorney General Gentner Drummond filed a lawsuit to prevent the state from using taxpayer money to prop up the nation's first religious charter school. He said, fuck that, it's not happening. He said, the board members who approved this contract have violated the religious liberty of every Oklahoman by forcing us to fund the teachings of a specific religious sect with our tax dollars. Yes, I mean, it is a clear, very clear um, violation of our establishment clause. Does, does Oklahoma not understand what that is? Have they never heard of it? Have they never read it? I'm, I'm just wondering because first we had this thing with PragerU 
you know, them allowing their curriculum to come into their classrooms, public school classrooms. And now we have this. Now, the, the lawsuit which was filed directly with the Oklahoma Supreme Court notes that the state constitution prohibits sectarian control of public schools. It also notes that using taxpayer dollars to fund a Catholic education violates the Establishment Clause in the U.S. Constitution. Told you so. I told you. Make no mistake, if the Catholic Church were permitted to have a public virtual charter school, he said, a reckoning would follow in which this state will be faced with the unprecedented quandary of processing requests to directly fund all petitioning sectarian groups. And that's absolutely the biggest concern here. Once that floodgate opens, it won't stop with one religious school and it won't end at Oklahoma's borders. And if taxpayers have to pay for private religious schools, that means even less money available for public education. So want to say thank you to the Attorney General there, you know, for stepping up and uh, getting her drumming, you're our superstar of the week because at least somebody in Oklahoma has some common sense and understands that this is not allowed. So anyway, that's our superstar of the week, getting her drumming, the Oklahoma Attorney General. And we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we return, we're going to get into our story this week about Sister Catherine Sesnick and the odd and disturbing circumstances surrounding her murder back in 1969. We'll be right back. Hey, have you ever listened to a podcast and thought, man, I'd love to do that? Well, you can, and the team at Buzzsprout is ready to help. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it'd be fun to have your own talk show, the Buzzsprout team is passionate about helping you succeed. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll also get a great looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Just follow the link in the show notes so that Buzzsprout knows we sent you. By doing this, you'll not only help support our show, but you'll also get a $20 credit if you sign up for a paid plan. Over 100,000 podcasters already use Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. You can too. Buzzsprout, the easiest way to start a podcast. All right, Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick was born November 17, 1942, in the Lawrenceville neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She was the eldest child of Joseph and Anna Amulek Sesnick. And uh, she had three siblings. And Catherine attended St. Mary's School on 57th Street and St. Augustine High School, both in Lawrenceville. She was valedictorian at the graduation of her high school class in 1960 and had also been the May Queen and the president of the senior class and the student council. She joined the School Sisters of Notre Dame when she was 18. Well, in the fall of 1969, Sesnick had been teaching drama and English at Archbishop Keogh High School in Baltimore, Maryland, which is a private, which is a private Catholic school for girls, uh, which opened in 1965. Now, at the time 
that her disappearance and, and later to be revealed her murder happened. Um, she had taken a sabbatical from teaching drama and English at Archbishop Keogh and had been granted the period of exclaustration. Exclaustration. I have no idea what that means. What does exclaustration mean? Um, I guess basically it's like a chance for her to get out of the Catholic environment for a little bit and teach in a secular school where she doesn't, doesn't have to wear a habit and things like that. Um, so uh, she lived outside it. Yeah. So uh, she was working at Baltimore City Public High School and was sharing an apartment with another nun. Um, her name was Helen Russell Phillips. And uh, they lived together at the Carriage House Apartments in uh, Catonsville. Well, as I, I mentioned earlier, on the night of November 7th, 1969, she was headed to run errands at a nearby shopping center where she was going to purchase a gift for her sister who was uh, engaged. And detectives believe that someone accosted the nun in front of her home as she returned from the store, forcing her back into the car, and that she was then taken to Monumental Avenue where she was assaulted and murdered. The next day, the roommate... Uh, Helen Russell Phillips, who was also a nun and a teacher at, at Keogh High School. She reported Sesnick missing to the Baltimore City Police. And uh, on January 3rd, her body, Sesnick's body, uh, was found. It had been ravaged by the elements and animals and uh, just dumped there in Lansdowne. Because of her body's condition, Police were unable to tell if she had been sexually assaulted. The autopsy reportedly found that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and what little physical evidence they found at the scene was collected. Uh, the victim's car had been found on November 8th, parked within walking distance of her home. And I'd mentioned all that earlier. Well, for the next seven years, the case was, according to the Baltimore County Police, extremely active. And then after 1977, the case became dormant, with all leads exhausted. In 1992, however, two female students at Archbishop Keogh High School made allegations of sexual abuse against a, a school counselor, school chaplain, um, and his, he was also a priest. His name was Father Joseph A. Maskell. And these two female students, former students, um, made these allegations against him, claimed that, that he, he had sexually abused them, um, had trafficked them, and um, <clears throat> they, uh, this, this fell under the jurisdiction of the Baltimore City Police. Well, in 1994, the two students were listed as plaintiffs in a $40 million suit alleging sexual abuse at the school by Maskell. One of them claimed... And this is where it ties into Sister Kathy. The defendant known as Jane Doe claimed that Maskell showed her Cessnick's body and threatened her. Now, according to detectives, there were inconsistencies in her account and uh, Maskell was not considered a prime suspect at the time. Uh, he died in 2001. In 1994, police reconsidered the Cessnick case given new advances in forensic testing. 
A DNA profile was created from some of the evidence at the crime scene. And for the next 15 years or so, DNA profiles of some six suspects were created and compared, but none of them matched. In 1996, the Maryland Court of Appeals decided that the statute of limitations in the the um, lawsuit that had been brought by the two former students would not be lifted. And um, they said that it would not be lifted in the case of repressed or recovered memories. In this case, alleged horrific sexual abuse. In 2016, the Archdiocese of Baltimore admitted to paying settlements uh, since 2011 to people who accused Maskell of abuse. Also in 2016, detectives on the Sesnick case retired and it was reassigned. Activity of the case on the case heated up as victims of sex abuse turned to social media to discuss Sister Kathy and Maskell. Numerous interviews were conducted according to the Baltimore County Police Department and one living suspect was re-interviewed. In January 2017, detectives looked at three similar unsolved murders for possible connections to Sister Kathy. Joyce Helen Malecki, who was 20 years old when she disappeared from Herondale Mall. Uh, this was just a few days after Sesnick had disappeared. Her strangled and stabbed body was found on federal property and was investigated by the Baltimore office of the FBI. Two 16-year-olds, Pamela Lynn Conyards and Grace Elizabeth Montaigne, were found dead in 1970 and 1971. In February, detectives got approval to exhume Maskell's body from a local cemetery to obtain a DNA sample. Uh, by the spring of that year, 2017, they got the results and it was not a match. In May, a woman came forward claiming to have been sexually assaulted by a deceased Baltimore County Police Department officer who was also linked to Sesnick and Maskell. According to the Baltimore County Police, the woman declined to be interviewed. So here's, here's the theory now as it stands um, about what happened to Sesnick. The theory was that Sesnick had become aware of the sexual abuse and was going to expose it. The reason for her murder has never been proven. Um, the Baltimore County Police Department's cold case detectives continue to work tirelessly on this case. Um, Elise Armacost, who is a spokesperson for the Baltimore County Police Department, said that this is one of their most active cold cases. She said, we feel cautiously optimistic that we can solve this, though the older a case gets, the more difficult it is to clear. Detectives continue to explore several theories regarding her murder. The Archdiocese of Baltimore asserts that it fully cooperated and did not attempt to interfere in the investigation of Sesnick's death. Now, this is according to a May 16, 27 article in Catholic Review. That's the newspaper of record for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Former students, relatives, journalists, public officials, and the public continue to express interest in the case on the Facebook group Justice for Catherine Sesnick and Joyce Malecki and other forums. And you can read more about that case at the Baltimore County website. Okay, so one of the women who filed the lawsuit, um, she went by Jane Doe. There was Jane Doe and Jane Rowe. That's what they called the two women. Uh, Jane Doe was a woman named Jean Wenner, and Jane Rowe was a woman named Teresa Lancaster. 
And like I said, they were former students at Keogh, and they said that they were sexually abused by Keogh's chaplain, Joseph Maskell. Um, and then Jean Wanner, she claimed that this was connected to Sister Kathy. Now, she said what had happened, Sister Kathy had approached her and asked her if the priests were hurting her. And she said yes. And she assured her that she was going to look into this and something was going to be done. And it's believed that maybe she had had a appointment to meet with the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And this might have been why she, why she was murdered. She may have said something to alert Maskell that she was going to do this. Jean Winter had also said that um, <clears throat> that just days after uh, Sister Kathy had disappeared, that Maskell drove her to a wooded site near Fort Meade and showed her Cessnick's body. Winter says she remembers trying repeatedly to brush off the maggots crawling on Cessnick's face while frantically repeating the words, help me, help me. She said that then Maskell told her, you see what happens when you say bad things about people? Now, her account was brought into question by scientific evidence showing that it would have been impossible for Magus to be alive at that time of the year. However, uh, one of the people who worked on the case, um, uh, he confirmed that there had been maggots. He's, this is the person who did the, um, the autopsy. He said there had been maggots found in Sesnick's throat and in her mouth. And meteorological records also revealed that the temperatures during that week in question were warm enough for maggots to hatch. So, you know, it was possible. Okay, so here's the thing. Winter and Teresa Lancaster, they made these accusations and said that they had been abused, and they claimed some pretty wild stuff. Okay, claimed that uh, Meskel would tell them that he was doing God's work, that God was punishing them for things that they had done, um, and that what he was going to do was purify them. Okay, he was basically saying, when I have sex with you, my semen entering into you will purify you of your sins and give you absolution. They also claimed that, that he would traffic them, um, that he would bring in people. One guy in particular was a guy that they called Brother Bob who um, would come in and, and was very rough with them, they said, and would have sex with them. And, and like I said, he, he was very rough and, and Masco had to get him under control a few times. And they believed that Brother Bob may have been uh, the person who actually murdered Sister Kathy. But then all of a sudden, other people started to come forward. Other girls from Archbishop Keogh from the time of the late 60s to the early 70s came in and, and also said that they too had been abused, that they too had been trafficked. And they talked about police officers coming in that were friends of Maskell's because he was like apparently on a lot of different boards and a lot of different groups in the community. 
for example, he was a chaplain for the Boy Scouts. He was a chaplain for the police. He was a chaplain for um, some military organizations there. Um, and he had a lot of friends in these areas that were apparently just as scuzzy as he was. The women also claimed that Maslik would take the girls on trips to see a gynecologist because occasionally girls got pregnant. And this gynecologist, a guy named Dr. Richter, would perform abortions for these girls and uh, also perform other exams on the girls and Maslick would leave the room and the doctor would molest them. And just some real shady, wild stuff going on. And, you know, this is all alleged because this was never brought to trial. But this is the claims that, that these women and the other women who came forward were making. And they all believed because apparently Sister Kathy had shown concern for a few of the female students, for quite a few and had asked about what was going on and what was happening and, and said that she was going to get to the bottom of this. She was going to find out what was happening. She was going to meet with the diocese and put an end to this, basically. As a matter of fact, the night before Sister Catherine was murdered, one of her students came to her house with her boyfriend and she was telling Sister Kathy about what she had gone through. Now, this is according to uh, a podcast that I had listened to um, called Mind Shock. Uh, said that she was there telling her what had been going on. And while she was there speaking to Sister Kathy, someone barges through the door, and it's Joseph Maskell and another priest, a, a, a priest named Magnus, that was also um, believed to have been a part of, of this sexual abuse that was happening at the school and they came busting in and told the student and her boyfriend that they needed to leave and she said that later he had threatened her and told her if she told anybody anything about him being there that night that he would kill her and her boyfriend and her family so she kept quiet so this abuse had been going on like I said from the late 1960s until the early 70s when, uh, when he was transferred to another school. And apparently there had been complaints about him from other schools too. The, the school that he was at before Archbishop Keogh had claimed that, that he had molested uh, some of the young boys at the school. It was an all-boys school. And so I, I, from what I read here, the uh, the diocese said, well, you know, um, apparently he's got a thing for little boys, so we're going to move him to an all-girls school, and we shouldn't have a problem with him anymore. They didn't prosecute him. They didn't turn him in. They transferred him to this other school with all girls. Well, I guess Mescal was actually bisexual um, because he continued his abuse there, according to all these witnesses. And so... All these years later, there's still no resolution to this case. 
It's a, it's a cold case. All we know is that Sister Kathy was murdered and her body was dumped. And they're not sure if she was actually murdered, where they found her body or if she was moved there later because they said that surely someone would have seen her. This, this had been almost two months that she was supposedly laying in this place. And, it, and it, it, it wasn't that remote. I mean, people could see it when they, they came by, according to, to what I've read here. So they, they believed that maybe she had been murdered somewhere else and then taken there, which would corroborate uh, Jean Winter's story because she said that he had taken her uh, somewhere around Fort Meade, just, just near Fort Meade. And that's where he showed her Sesnick's body. Well, just a few days after he had shown her that body, in the same place, that's where they found the body of Joyce Malecki. And it was just, like I said, just a, a few days later, that same month, they found the body of Joyce Malecki, which was, like I said, in the same location there by, by Fort Meade. And apparently this woman looked a lot like Winter. They, they looked very similar. They could have been sisters. And... She thought that maybe that was a warning to her, that this could be you if you tell anybody anything about what's going on. And so, like I said, he died in 2001. They exhumed his body in 2017 um, because of DNA they had been able to collect from the initial evidence, and he wasn't a match. But the, uh, the people there working on it, they said, well, look, this, just because he's not a match for the DNA, this does not exclude him from being a, a suspect. You know, he still could have been there. He still could have been uh, responsible for what happened. So I, I wish I could tell you more about this story, but unfortunately there's no more to tell. You know, they, they uh, attempted their lawsuit, the two women, and they... We're told basically, you know, that, that we're not going to extend the statute of limitations on this. This is uh, not murder. You know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And um, they said, you know, as far as what happened to them, not Sister Sesnick, but what happened to them. And so since they refused to do that, you know, that was dismissed, I guess, but it did say that um, the uh, archdiocese did make a settlement to them, as we talked about earlier. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think a lot of that is probably they just they just want it out of the news. But unfortunately for them, it's not going to go out of the news because this is you know all over social media, several Facebook groups concerning this. And then, as we mentioned, the Netflix docuseries, The Keepers, tells the whole story. And I urge you to watch that. But here's, remember I told you earlier I had a little bit of, uh, a, little bit of a problem with some of this. And if you remember in, in one of our Satanic Panic episodes, we told the story of Martinsville, um, in Saskatchewan in Canada and we also told in the same episode the story of the McMartin trial that was happening in California and all of the, the claims made about that and 
there, there were just a lot of similarities here. And also, a lot of these, these women, like the two who initiated the case here, the, the lawsuit, these had been memories that they had suppressed. And basically through hypnosis, these memories came back out again. So that makes me very skeptical. Now, like I said, I, I do not deny or I, I, don't, uh, I don't doubt for a minute that, you know, anything that, that talks about Catholic priests abusing uh, children or the Catholic Church covering it up. You know, I, I, I don't doubt that for a minute. That's happened over and over and over again, just, just like what had happened with mass school being moved from one school to the other. They do that. They'll just move them to different parishes all across the country. Um, and so I know that happens. But I'm thinking about Michelle Remembers, that book, and what supposedly came to the surface you know, through that. But the, the difference here, and, and that's why I don't, I don't think I can remain too skeptical about this, is they're asking a lot of the same questions I would or that I have asked over this, especially with the police coming into the school and there were uh, some of the testimony was that Masco had pulled a gun on, some of the students had threatened them, things like that. Um, people coming in and out, basically taking the girls on, on trips, you know, to take them to different counties to basically pimp them out. And uh, there were quite a few of the other girls who testified to that. Um, one girl said that she had been to, a, to one other county other than the one she lived in. And she said that there were other girls who had, that she knew personally had went to six or seven different counties you know, with Masco, and I'm thinking, with all this going on, his his office is right there in this school building. This is all happening during school hours. These people coming in and out. Why didn't it raise suspicion then for anybody other than just Sister Kathy? And one of the the girls asked the same question. She said. We knew what was happening. We, she said, I knew what was happening to me. She said, I didn't understand. Why didn't anyone help us? They had to have seen these people coming in and out. They had to have seen Maskell taking us out on trips. Why didn't anybody step in and say, what's going on? And I guess that's the same question I have about this. Why didn't anybody at that time step in? But then I remember somebody did. Her name is Sister Kathy. And she was murdered. Now, because of these other murders, Joyce Malecki and um, the, other, the other two women who had died during that time, um, they started to, to say, well, maybe this was an outsider that did this. You know, maybe this was someone who, you know, was a serial killer and came through the area and committed these four murders and moved on. And I guess that's a possibility. 
But when you look at all these these other accusations and the fact that Meskel was witnessed being at Kathy's home the night before she disappeared. I don't I don't know. I I think that maybe they were onto something with Meskel as far as his connection to this. I don't have any trouble believing at all that he sexually abused these girls. Some of the other stuff is, is hard to believe, but even the girls were asking, why is no one getting suspicious about this? So that makes, makes me tend to believe, yeah, this probably was going on because they were just as baffled as anybody else. But it's the whole recovering memory over years. That's, that's what makes me nervous about this um, because like I said because of the things we talked about in the satanic panic with those cases uh, with the Michelle remembers books with the the uh, just total hysteria that was going on around those things um, maybe it's just because it's so hard to believe that that could happen and that no one would try to help it should have been way more people than just Sister Kathy who said, hey, something's not right here. Something's going on. Something's wrong with these girls. I, I don't know. I, 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 like I said, I really wish I could bring you some kind of resolution on this, that I could tell you so-and-so was found guilty and all this other stuff was proven. But I guess for right now, I'm just going to make the decision that I'm going, to, I'm going to stand behind what these women are saying because I don't doubt it. Because of other cases that we've seen in the Catholic Church, we know that it's definitely possible and probable that this could have happened. And some of it was so specific that I, I, I don't see how it could be made up, especially um, like even the defense attorneys did something brilliant in this lawsuit. They kept these women separate. They wouldn't let them interact with each other. They didn't even know who the other one was. They never met until the day they came to court. And their stories were identical as far as the abuse and the things that were happening at the school. They had never talked. They never met. They didn't know who the other one was. And it was the same with all these other women who came forward. They all told the same stories. They all lined up with each other. So because of that, I'm like this, I really think this happened. I really think these girls were abused by these horrible fucking monsters that called themselves men of God. And that lends more weight to what Gene Wenner was saying. And I believe that that this had a lot to do with why his sister Kathy was murdered. I just really, really wish I could, I could tell you for sure that I could say this has been proven, this person has been convicted, you know, <clears throat> without a shadow of doubt. And I hope that one day they'll be able to make that happen. You know, that, that they'll be able to bring someone to justice. 
or at least be able to prove who did this, even if they passed on, to be able to prove what happened. That a witness had come forward, something, someone who knew for sure who it was that killed Sister Kathy. And whether or not it was the same people that killed Joyce Malecki or Pamela Lynn Conyers or Grace Elizabeth Montaigne. I wish that their families could have closure. They, and, and know who did this to them. But unfortunately, this is going to have to be an open-ended uh, episode because we still don't know. There's still not enough evidence to say conclusively that this person did it. We have a lot of suspicions and a lot of characters that we really, really believe were involved. But we just don't have all those other missing pieces yet to really put it together and say, okay, this is what happened. This is why it happened. And this is who did it. So hopefully I can come back on here sometime soon and say, hey, I have an update to this. That's, that's what we're hoping for. But that was, that was Sister Kathy's story, as short as it was. And uh, like I said, I, I urge you to watch The Keepers on Netflix, uh, to go to the Facebook uh, pages, and you can read a lot, lot more on, on this there as well. Um, so anyway, that's, that's going to do it for this story for now. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode of The Iscariot Generation. Next week, we're going to look at what I believe is the most horrible, atrocious, religiously motivated crime of all time. And these crimes were so bad that new words had to be invented just to describe what had happened there. So next week, we're going to begin talking about the Holocaust. And I hope you'll join me for that. And uh, that's probably going to end up being a two-parter. Um, so uh, brace yourselves for that one. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. And until then, I want you to remember that you don't have to be religious to do the right thing. And you don't have to be non-religious to be an asshole. So take care of yourselves. And I'll talk to you next week. This has been an Okie Doke production.